Welcome to Healthy Wealthy You, where we'll continue to explore all aspects of functional medicine and good health. We'll help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. Now, here is your host, Dr. Camille Vardy. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille. And as you know, one of my favorite questions in the whole wide world is why? And I particularly think this is an important question when I see patients in the clinic who are doing everything they can. They're following a strict diet. They're trying to do all the right things and they get some result. They reach a plateau, but they can't seem to get any further. And it's distressing sometimes. It's even heartbreaking to watch how hard they try. And so if you're one of these people, our show today is about the issue of cross-sensitivity, about hidden triggers in the diet of which you may not be aware that could be creating inflammation, autoimmune disease, could be affecting your brain and your nervous system. Sometimes we react to one thing and we're very aware of it, but there may be other things that are chemically similar that we're having a lesser reaction and we don't even realize that we're reacting to those secondary things. This can often be a big barrier in really getting the breakthroughs in your health that you may be looking for. So today I'm going to welcome uh, as our guest, Dr. Jim Chialtis. Um, and he is an expert in autoimmunity, in cross sensitivity and particularly the impact of gluten and cross-sensitivity gluten reactions on this issue. Dr. Chialtis has an undergraduate degree in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology, and has master's and doctorate degrees in acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And he teaches classes in functional blood chemistry and endocrinology. Welcome, Dr. Chialtis. Well, happy to be here. I just want to first recognize what you just said about the why. I, I can't agree more. Um, I think that that is like the hallmark of a of a good clinician, <laughs> at, because if we're just settling on the symptom level and we're not asking the mechanism questions, why is it presenting a certain way? What you know, you could have five possible reasons for one symptom, and and uh, boy, we better figure that out. So um, I just wanted to recognize that little statement right off the bat. Uh, Thank you. That is functional medicine, you know, kind of in a nutshell. What is cross reactivity, first of all, and why is it important? Sure. Yeah. Um, And this is a is is exactly what a next level of understanding is, in my opinion. Um, Cross reactivity. um, You might say cross sensitivity as well. It's it's literally describing uh, an immune reaction that takes place as sort of the best way to to understand it is a mistaken identity. So if I can just bring a little bit of understanding of of what a protein is, again, just so we understand how a sensitivity reaction works. So a protein is this long chain of amino acids, hundreds and maybe even thousands long at time, and and they fold in certain ways and they give that protein a shape. You know, in in, uh, biology, we say um, structure equals function, right? So depending on what amino acids are in a, in a row, they will 
create a shape of a protein that looks a certain way, does a certain thing. Okay. Like beads on a string. So when we say that like, oh no, I'm sensitive to dairy or I'm sensitive to gluten. Um, the, the reality is, is no, you're not. You're not sensitive to the food itself. You're sensitive to a very short sequence of amino acids, little beads on a string along that, you know, that protein molecule. So when we, when we eat something, we chew it up, we digest it, and we break it into smaller and smaller fragments. Ideally, those fragments get so small, usually one to three amino acids long, which is not very big, that once it gets into our bloodstream, it can fly under the radar of the immune system and we use them as nutrient. That's ideal. But if for any reason, those fragments aren't getting through at such a small level, they're, they're longer. Let's just say six amino acids, 10, it doesn't seem that much different, but now the immune cells that are waiting on the other side of that barrier, they're kind of always lurking and tasting and sampling. Do I care? Do I not care? They're the gatekeepers, right? Because that's the threshold between the inside and outside of our body. It's kind of a brain teaser when you think of the intestines as not being inside our body, but think about it this way. If you swallow a marble, you're probably just going <laughs> to excrete the marble, right? It never made it into your blood. But if something's allowed to squeeze into the blood, now the immune system says, uh-oh, what's that? So once that's happened, now an antibody is made. The immune system says, I don't like the looks of that guy. I'm gonna make a mirror image protein of it. It's gonna fit perfect. And it's gonna recognize only that thing. And, and I'm awesome. And I'm gonna remember it every time now, which is why you, you and your friends don't give flus back to each other over and over again, because you just know the shape, right? Um, a cross sensitivity or a cross reaction is that in this case, gluten specific antibody, right? That they recognize certain amino acids accidentally looks at something else and thinks it's gluten. That's a cross reaction. Um, you know, foods can do this. So sometimes a person is gluten sensitive, but they also feel lousy when they eat dairy. Right. And they may or may not have a direct immune reaction to the dairy at that point in time, meaning they might not have antibodies specific to dairy yet, or, or they may never, but dairy looks a lot like gluten. Casein, the protein casein is almost like an identical twin to gluten. So a lot of people react to both, but it can only be through this gluten reactivity concept. That's a cross reaction. And Sadly, for a lot of people who want to go gluten-free, sometimes it's all the other gluten-free grains as well. Because remember I said, gluten is this massive thing. It's made up of lots of little things all stuck together. Well, even rice, which is considered pretty tolerable by most, has at least some of those little sub-pieces, right? They're, they're close enough that an immune response might think it's gluten. So I think that the notion of, and getting to your kind of comment about gluten-free diets don't always work for everybody. It's totally true. There could be other stuff that looks too much like it. Well, and I think that a key piece here is the fact that, you know, we're talking about breaking things down into these smaller units and all proteins do that, not just gluten. And so when you break yeah. things down into these smaller units, it's which are the units that the various foods have in common. And I think that goes back to your original comment of all the different subtypes of gluten. 
and it's testing and why it's important to really identify which ones you're sensitive to, because then that gives you a lot of clues as to where to go with other possible sensitivities, because you don't want to take protein off the table and not, not eat it at all. Your body has to have protein, but to, to help identify which other proteins besides gluten you might be sensitive to, um, knowing those smaller parts is essential. I agree. Absolutely. And there's really wonderful labs out there, luckily, these days that can help with that. But no, I think we want to expand this concept a little farther. An immune cell is just doing its job, looking around the system for things it doesn't understand or doesn't like. And that could be a food or that could be um, a foreign invader, like a virus or a bacteria or a parasite or a a mold or yeast. Um, Or it could be a self-tissue in the case of autoimmunity. So I, I think where gluten becomes a hot topic, which brings it above the fad diet level, is there's high cross-reactivity between the, the amino acids in gluten and the amino acid sequences in proteins of our own tissues and organs. Some key ones in, in particular, and the most common, would be in the thyroid gland. So there's a, there's a disease, if you want to call it a disease, um, called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or, or in, lower, in, in less severe terms, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, perhaps. Um, it's the leading reason why people are on thyroid hormone medication anyways. It's just not always diagnosed that way. Uh, but it's an autoimmune reaction against um, most commonly a little um, enzyme in the, the thyroid called thyroid peroxidase, TPO. And TPO looks a lot like gluten. So if you have a gluten reaction, you're, you're probably launching attacks against TPO even if they're not making TPO antibodies and don't even have a fully established autoimmune disease yet. Like we're talking early expression now. This is the time where people are starting to feel weird, right? And they go to their doctor and they're like, oh, you have a, you're weird. I don't know. We can't figure out what's wrong with you. You know, maybe you just have depression or something. You know, can't tell you how often I've heard that. (laughs) They get, they get the prescribed Prozac for their, you know, early thyroid issue, right? Um, they could be reacting. Their food is launching signals to their immune system to attack their thyroid gland. So that progresses, possibly, likely, and then it it becomes Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It becomes a true autoimmunity. So if one were to test the blood, they'd find antibodies now specific to TPO. So it goes both directions. If you have a TPO antibody, you're going to be reacting to gluten because it looks a lot like it. Um, That's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. There, it, it, there are a lot of these <laughs> out there. Um, for example, there are with gliadin, with those little pieces of gluten, there are known autoimmune reactions with the adrenal glands, with the liver, with uh, the heart, myo- myocardial peptide, with bone, with ovary, um, with many different neurological tissues, such as um, synapsin, which is found in the little tips of our nerve endings and cerebellar, which is an actual part of our brain. You can start attacking the cerebellum and um, myelin basic protein. That's a precursor to uh, multiple sclerosis MS. And one of my personal favorites um, is a little enzyme um, called glutamic acid decarboxylase. I I think I'm, I'm um, nodding to myself that I'm nerdy because I I have a favorite uh, molecule called glutamic acid decarboxylase, but 
what it does is two things. You find it in the pancreas. It's, it helps us produce insulin. And so type one diabetics, you know, quote unquote, juvenile onset autoimmune, um, you will find GAD antibodies before the disease sets in. It's part of that disease process. Uh, but it's also found in the cerebellum and it helps convert glutamate into GABA. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. You might know it from monosodium glutamate. So people that have MSG reactions probably um, aren't converting that glutamate to the calming GABA hormone, neurotransmitter in the brain. And so one of the most common things with gluten reactions is anxiety. How much Xanax is out there? <laughs> how, many, how much anti-anxiety? Benzos are not a good ones to be on long-term, right? Are they just reacting to gluten and attacking their GAD antibodies? You no, know, GAD enzymes with these antibody reactions? I don't know, but let's find out, shall we? And not only is GAD enzyme very important for anxiety, and it is actually a huge root cause of anxiety, but it's also a huge root Absolutely. cause of neurodegenerative disorders. Um, not with MS, but ALS, uh, it's very important in that. And any kind of nervous system de generation, this is an important concept. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in, in more ways than one, but as important as glutamate is in our brain, because glutamate helps our neurons stay awake and alive. It's an excitatory thing. We have to be alert, you know, and have our, our neurons function, but it can become an excitatory neurotoxin, right? If you stimulate something too much, it's going to give up, right? And a brain cell is just going to fatigue and die. So absolutely. Um, and it, even just accelerating neurological decline and, you know, dementia, all that also, you know, what else? Let's not be satisfied with just that because that's not addressing the, the why we can get back to the why, right? So there's a lot to this cross-reactive concept, both within foods and within, you know, infections and within autoimmunity. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Can you address more this issue of infectious diseases and how you see bacteria, virus, molds play in? And speaking of viruses, have yeah. you noticed any big changes as a result of the COVID virus? Oh, great question. Um, yeah, um, I'll answer the first part first. So I, I think that aside from this potential for cross-reactivity, right, which, which occurs kind of in the in the context of several other things usually. So a person will tend to start losing tolerances. Did they lose tolerance to their foods? Yes, they're gluten sensitive now, right? So that means that their immune system is on hair trigger and, and they're highly reactive to stuff. So now, you know, when they, when they get exposed to something, they can react a little bit more aggressively than they once would have, right? We need to restore our tolerances. If you really look at a, a functional approach to longevity and wellness, it's all about you know, what am I tolerant to? And what am I not tolerant to? You know, are you sleep tolerant? Can you, can you, can you go without a, a night of sleep or you do fall apart afterwards? You know, if you, if you fall apart afterwards, then your immune system is probably going to respond in a negative way. Right. But that could be for hot and cold exposure and foods and chemicals and, you know, that whole, that whole thing. So I think appreciating the background before an infection takes place is, is really, really key. Um, and just know that every time somebody does get an infection, be it a really aggressive, acute thing like a, a bad flu or a bad COVID or something low grade and smoldering, which might actually even be worse um, because it lasts years, like a, maybe a parasite or um, 
or some of these viruses like Epstein-Barr or herpes that they can linger. Um, it's always pouring at least a little trickle of gasoline into the immune system fire, right? The immune system's always fired up about something. Um, so ideally we can systematically go through a system and, and identify these triggers and then start removing them appropriately and help the immune system calm itself down. That's functional medicine, in my opinion. Um, the, the COVID concept is new, um, but I do believe we're getting enough data now to know <laughs> uh, some really cool stuff. There is a known cross-reactivity. And actually getting back to my, my teacher and, and, um, uh, and mentor, Dr. Datis Karazian, he published a paper with Dr. Aristo Vejdani, who runs Cyrex Labs. Um, this happened early on in the COVID thing, um, and they were starting to get curious. They, they had the foresight. What is this going to be reacting to in an autoimmune way? And they came up with um, at least a dozen or so cross reactions in our own bodies. Um, heart disease is one, right? We're hearing about these, you know, 20 year old male athletes who all of a sudden are having myocarditis or dropping dead, heaven forbid, you know, with no one knows why. Um, Hashimoto's absolutely is involved in that. Um, a whole handful of neurological tissues and a whole handful of more systemic um, proteins. By that, I mean things that are in all cells. So things like will provoke like disease like lupus or Sjogren's disease, which are kind of more of a systemic autoimmunity versus like an organ. Um, yeah, so there, there's, a, there's a whole list. I'm happy to share that that paper with you and your fans, if you, if you like that, <laughs> your audience. Absolutely, um, that would be great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, if we have show notes or something, I'm happy to provide that. It's a really great, short, easy to understand paper. So let's take a break here and we'll be right back with more of Dr. Jim Chialtis talking about gluten. And we are going to take this next level because you know how I like to go deeper on things. So uh, this is Dr. Camille and Healthy Wealthy You. We will be right back. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Our children deserve to be emotionally healthy as they grow through youth into adulthood. As adults, if we model these behaviors for our children and incorporate them into our own daily lives, imagine the synergy we can create. We have become accustomed to waiting for symptoms before we seek help, both emotionally and physically. It's time to change our way of thinking from reactive to proactive. Let's learn what we need to now 
so kids growing up have skills and strategies to use for life in this very challenging world. Tune into Taking the Helm with host Lynn McLaughlin to learn all you need to know. Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille, and I'm here with Dr. Jim Chialtis. And we are talking about autoimmune disease and the impact of gluten and why just being on a gluten-free diet may not be enough. So why is this important for autoimmune disease and for our health in general? Wow. I mean, that's a great question. Um, I, autoimmune disease, um, you know, for those listeners who may or may not really be, um, you know, uh, you know, know the lingo, auto self immune, our immune system attacking ourself, right? So that can take place in a lot of different areas of our body. I believe there's something on the order of, you know, 90 or so known autoimmune diseases, but you can have an infinite number of autoimmune reactions against any tissue. I've even seen cases where a gentleman was attacking his own testosterone. And I don't know what the disease is for that necessarily, but, you know, he was attacking this testosterone as a result of this autoimmunity. So, you know, gluten just being sort of a, a well-known inflammatory food for a lot of people, an inflammatory trigger um, can aggravate and irritate that, that autoimmunity if it's going on. But I think one of the most important concepts to understand with this is, is the person gluten sensitive or not, Right. It's not just like everybody is going to react, you know, to gluten and, and have this autoimmune thing. There's usually a, a cascade of events that can lead to such a thing, right? Um, oftentimes gluten being the primary or some other food sensitivity kind of launching its way. But, um, but provided that there is a, you know, a gluten sensitivity happening already, and then a person develops or has a known existing autoimmune disease, well, then that gluten is like pouring gasoline on that fire. So when I talk to my patients, I kind of try to give some imagery, maybe bring in a little bit of an emotional response to the situation, because let's just say they have an autoimmune disease and they feel terrible. Well, I kind of liken them to being a structure on fire. You know, I call them a structure fire <laughs> lovingly. Um, and if you want to start adding gasoline, you start adding in things that are known to inflame the system. Right. And it's oftentimes the things we do the most. Right. And how often are we eating gluten <laughs> in a day? It, it could be, you know, 10 times in a day, possibly in, in some cases. So I think that it's a really, really valuable piece of the puzzle when it comes to autoimmunity to know what's going in our mouth and what could be triggering our immune response. Uh, I think that it's important to know what it is that does the triggering as well. So if, if the immune, when I say immune reaction, or we might say sensitivity, um, what happens is the immune cells recognize it as a, as something wrong. They, for whatever reasons they have, they don't like it. And they, they launch little, um, 
chemical messengers called cytokines. And so those little chemicals float around the body and they signal to their buddies, hey, we're under attack here. Let's attack everything else we remember. So let's just say you have rheumatoid arthritis and your, your joints are in chronic pain and, and you're eating something like gluten that's inflaming. Your immune cells are telling each other that we're in trouble. And so they start attacking the cartilage even more. So it's like adding gasoline to the, you know, to the fire. Uh, and this can be due to cross reactions, you know, all over the, the body, really. I mean, it can be um, cross reactions between foods that happen. And it, it, the more that happens, the more it gets whipped up. And, and you can kind of appreciate this sort of feed forward cycle that happens. And next thing you know, somebody's just trying to eat their meal and, and they're just chronically inflaming themselves over and over again. Right. And that leads to, you know, tissue destruction. <laughs> That's autoimmune disease. So I, I think what we put in our body on having that deeper level of understanding for, for the individual is very, very important when you're talking about something like autoimmune disease, which, you know, quite frankly, in the mainstream model, if it's bad enough, if it's in an organ that's serious enough, they'll tend to wipe out your immune system as a treatment and that can save your life, but that's also no place to live if you, if you can avoid it. Right. So. I'm not here to say what direction is right for anybody. What I'm trying to say is let's make sure we're not pouring gasoline on that fire to start. So I think well, that's and it. I, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that the, there's also the important issue that when you talk about pouring gasoline on the fire is yeah. that if you don't know what your autoimmune reaction is to, you might be taking supplements or medications that are actually making the reaction worse. Like in the case that you mentioned, yeah. uh, that gentleman who was autoimmune reactive to, to um, his own testosterone. Right. It, you, we see that all the time. People can be autoimmune to thyroid hormone or estrogen or progesterone. And right. so if you are then taking thyroid supplements, you're just inflaming the reaction. You're adding more fuel to the fire. Same with people sometimes who are taking estrogen or progesterone supplementation. So that, that person could be taking a testosterone supplement, feeling that he is showing the symptoms of being low testosterone. And yet all right. he's doing is creating more of an autoimmune reaction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot and it takes a lot of time as a clinician to, to dig into those types of concepts. I can appreciate the experience of the prescribing MD perhaps who did the testosterone replacement on that person because they're trying like mad to help this person feel better. And they notice that their testosterone's low and they, you know, and they're giving it and, um, and things are getting worse. Absolutely. And it's something that the person is taking every day. So that reaction yeah. perpetuates itself and, and usually escalates and gets worse. Absolutely. So why is a gluten-free diet important and who, yeah. who should consider being gluten-free? Yeah, I, I would like to um, address the elephant in the room first. And that would be that not everyone needs to be on a gluten-free diet. <laughs> I, I definitely appreciate the concepts of the fad dieting out there. Um, and I don't discourage anybody from trying it no matter what, but do they need to be on it? I don't know. Um, how they feel on it and testing will tell them if that's the case. But I do wish for everyone's sake 
Um, I do wish for the nation's sake and the state of our, our crumbling insurance industry that everyone could get tested. Because if we just found more of these types of conditions, um, everybody would be experiencing less suffering and disease, in my opinion. It, it's that pervasive. So I don't know about everyone needs to be, but I wish everybody would get tested. Uh, the consequences can be really, really serious. And what the literature shows is that all cause mortality or morbidity goes up in somebody who has a known gluten sensitivity and does nothing about it. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, all the big diseases that get us in the end, those will be, you know, um, driven and made worse because there's more to gluten than just having a painful stomach. So I, I think that Testing is huge for everybody just to see if you're in that category or not. Um, but certainly anybody with a family history of, of gluten sensitivity, if anybody in your family bloodline knows that they have this issue, then you should be tested. There could be a genetic trait, the HLADQ gene polymorphism just means kind of um, mutation it is what drives celiac disease. And that that's a very kind of an aggressive autoimmune version of gluten sensitivity. But if it's in the family, you might want to know about it. Um, I think that it's important because people don't always put together what they're feeling with something like gluten, because everybody knows that gluten has to do with celiac disease and it's in our gut. But again, the literature tells us that you know, close to 70%, 70% of gluten reactions do not occur in the gut. They occur in the brain and nervous system. They're really tightly connected with the GI, the digestive system, of course. So anybody with any kind of chronic gut issue, be that irritable bowel syndrome of any kind, you know, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, um, you know, certainly if you have any known diseases like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, those are very aggressive autoimmunities. Um, absolutely get tested for gluten or just trial off of it for a bit. Uh, but skin is also a very, very common reaction too. I mean, I, I think that pick your medical modality throughout time and there's, they're going to say gut skin relationship. <laughs> it's, it, it's a, it's over and over again. We hear the same concept. So people that have any kind of chronic thing that requires creams from their doctor that just won't go away. Otherwise um, eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis. I've even seen pretty bad acne improve when they've gone off of that. So anything chronic requiring medication, it deserves a look, if nothing else. And then finally, the, the brain. I mean, if anybody complaining of headaches or migraines, um, if, they're, if they're having it at any kind of regular frequency, must get checked. Um, brain fog. I think you and I can appreciate how common that symptom comes up in our clinic. Um, well, your brain's on fire. Sorry to tell you. Um, anxiety and depression. You know, so... Anything chronic in the gut, skin, or brain, or, or peripheral nervous tissue, you know, if they're having neuropathies and things like that. Um, those are the people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Ah, so if you don't mind me just getting into a very short aside of, of neurology. So um, I'll make it brief. There are immune cells in our brain called microglia. And glia stands for glue. They thought they were just glue cells that held the neurons together. But they're much more dynamic than that. Um, they're the primary... Uh, immune cell of the brain. And typically they migrate through the brain tissue in a healthy way and they, they take out old damaged cells and they clean up stuff. And they're there in case we get a infection in our brain and 
we're going to die. And it, it's our last ditch effort to save our lives. Okay. Now, when there's brain injury, um, those microglia become primed. They're called primed M1 primed microglia, and they freeze in place and they don't ever move again for the life of that brain. They stay alive as long as a neuron for so your whole life, right? So now every time, remember I said that word cytokine, that inflammatory molecule that, that gets released by the immune cells, those little, those little inflammatory things get through our blood brain barrier and aggravate our microglia. So a primed microglia, and I'm going to borrow this from Dr. Datis Karazian. He calls them chihuahuas with bazookas, which I think is rad <laughs> because they're chihuahuas and they don't stop and they've got bazookas and they kill everything in their path. Microglia have bazookas. They will kill tissue. So mm -hmm. eat gluten, kill brain for me. I'm not doing that. I don't care how good the pizza looks. Right. It's delicious poison in my mind. And so much of what we put into our mouths is not really food these days. That's right. That's right. I think that's a perfect place for us to take our, our another break. Awesome. And um, we will be right back with Dr. Jim Chialtis and this idea of cross-reactivity. And I, I want to talk more about solutions and what can we do to quell uh, these cross-reactivity uh, reactions and to not pour gasoline on the fire. So this is Dr. Camille and Healthy Wealthy You, and we will be right back. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Hi, this is Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille, and we're here with Dr. Jim Chialtis. And we are talking about autoimmune cross-reactivity and um, how proteins can trigger it, particularly the gluten protein. And please tell us, what can we do about it? How can we bring down these reactions? How can we put the fire out a bit? And how do we prevent triggering it any more than we have to. Yeah. And there is a, of course, a multi-pronged approach to that 
that question. The first one is identifying the necessity of the reaction in the first place. Do you have the, the food reaction going on? Do you have that, that gluten reaction in this case? Or I would say, and or any of those other cross-reactive possibilities. So I typically will run a panel, um, whether they want to do it all at once or in series, because let's face it, this is out of pocket. Um, this is not insurance model kind of medicine here. So, you know, we might start with the biggest one, like a gluten thing, and then follow up with the cross-reactive panel. But I want to make sure that we're not continuing every day, multiple times a day to put gasoline on the fire. And what I have to tell people with a very honest and straight face is that one reaction can last up to three months, right? You know, it's your birthday and your best friend makes the best banana bread in the world and she made it for you. And you know what? You were good. You only had one bite and you haven't had gluten for three weeks. You're doing awesome. No, <laughs> no, that's not going to cut it. You need to be 100% committed if there's this going on because a life of an antibody is about three to four months in most people. So you really need to be off of it. That has to happen, provided that you're positive, <laughs> that we found reactions, right? Um, having said that, sometimes people still feel lousy, even though their test results look awesome. And that's sometimes just the breaks with, with testing. There's, there's reasons for false negatives. So always listen to the body. In fact, sometimes I just prefer people try a 30-day trial, gluten-free diet or an autoimmune paleo or something, whatever. But but step one is remove the problems. Um, yeah, step two would be to give the immune system what it needs to, you know, function better. And and what I mean by that is, you know, I mentioned those little cells in the in the intestines, right? In, in the in that barrier system between where the food is and where the bloodstream is. And you know, these are regulatory cells. Um, they are looking for things to react to and and deciding on it all the time. So what do they need, right? What is the gut barrier and what are those immune cells need? And from more of a nutraceutical kind of a supplement based concept um, to simplify, they need things like vitamin D, absolutely. We have a crippling vitamin D epidemic in this country. Um, so we need to get some vitamin D in, possibly some vitamin A for that gut barrier. Uh, we need things like EPA and DHA, fish oils, those are anti-inflammatory in general, but they also directly help the regulatory T cells stay calm. So they're not so reactive. All the things in this list help the regulatory T cells stay calm and, and get back to that notion of tolerance. Are you tolerating your food or not? Right. You should be. Um, so fish oils, vitamin A, vitamin D, and then um, glutathione. That's a big topic, glutathione. It's, a, it's our body's primary antioxidant. It's, it turns up Treg activity to kind of help moderate these immune responses. It gives us back our tolerance. So that's kind of where I would start supplementally. Um, honestly, without even doing any tests, I could do all those things without think, batting an eye. But what else do we need? We need sleep, right? We need some form of stress physiology management. And the world is crazy out there. We need a time for ourselves to, to sit and to be calm and to re restore um, some kind of exercise. You know, you have to keep the blood moving. You have to get those anti-inflammatory bursts, you know, after exercise, uh, all the hormones that are released from exercise. I mean, this all matters. You want to make sure that the microbiome is in good shape. 
right? So now we're talking about functional medicine again, right? Like this greater concept. What can we do to help a tissue? Most of the time we can do all the same things to help all our tissues. Those three things, find the problems and eliminate them, get in the things that help the regulatory T cell function like vitamin D, vitamin A, glutathione, fish oils in higher doses, and um, make sure all your basic fundamentals like sleep and exercise and relationships and you know connection to others, all that stuff is in place. And if someone has been following a gluten-free diet and mm -hmm. they're already taking quite a few of these supplements, we, we've already had a show on glutathione. It's everyone knows oh, it's one of my big favorites. Um, if we're doing all these things and someone's unsuccessful, what do you think they might be overlooking? Well, um, it might not be the gluten. It might be something else. It could be one of those other cross reactions that they just haven't really gotten yet. They haven't figured that part out. Um, but it could be getting back to the basic physiology again. It could be that they have blood sugar issues that could be high or low. They could be like insulin resistant or, or full blown diabetic, or they could be hypoglycemic on the low end and just dipping throughout the day, which triggers stress physiology, which damages gut, you know, all of it. Anytime our systems go out of balance in any way, it generally triggers the immune response in an inflammatory way, driving whatever's there. So blood sugar issues, thyroid imbalance, um, you know, could be chemical loads. Maybe you work at a gas station or, you know, maybe you work at a factory that makes carpet and your, your chemical burden is extremely high. That is going to start triggering all these, you know, immune cells to be much more reactive. And it can look a lot like, you know, a food sensitivity and it might, it might launch itself into other food sensitivities besides gluten. Uh, you could also just be getting exposed to gluten without knowing it. That's another one. That's a, that's a real, a real big one. I mean, who reads their mustard labels? You, know, you have to be, you have to be really sick to start doing that. <laughs> no, um, it's lurking everywhere. 80% of our food. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, that covers most of those things. And a lot of people say that they have issues with gluten when they're eating it here in the United States, but they don't have the same issues mm -hmm. when they travel abroad. And oh, yeah. I know that it has a lot to do with our methods of food preparation that we tend to, uh, the food industry tends to accelerate um, yeah. the baking process, the preparation process. And so the proteins don't break down in the same way. And so we become more reactive because of this incomplete processing. Can you Absolutely. address that? Yeah, super good point. I, actually on two levels, I, I have a colleague um, who was born in China in like the early seventies. And she remembers her mom would always have rice sitting on the countertop soaking, right? They, they, they wouldn't dream of cooking their rice without processing it first in their own way, soaking it, you know, in, in essence, sort of uh, getting a mild ferment, changing it chemically, and then you cook it and then you eat it. And it's much better. We, we uh, live in like, you know, a rice culture where we just dump it out of a box into boiling water and don't put any thought into our food and we just eat it. Right. So certainly in our more modern Western culture, I would, I would argue uh, we're not sitting with our foods the way we used to. We don't, 
embrace a lot of fermented foods uh, like like the ancients did and even up till recent times. So I think that's step number one. Um, what comes to mind most though for me with respect to America versus the other parts of the world, especially Europe where they really take food more seriously is this notion of uh, deamidation and amide is just a little chemical group. It's a carbon with some oxygen, nitrogen hanging off, but who cares? That's native. That's the way it's always been, right? Now, what we've done in America 50, 60 years ago or so was we, in the processing of these grains, this is not genetically modified. This is not happening at a genetic level. It's processing once it gets to the factories. They figured out a way to strip off that amide. It's called deamidation. And that's suspect. Our immune systems have evolved to understand what that original shape looked like. And so now it doesn't know what that is officially. And even if you don't have a full-blown reaction, the immune system is at least suspect, you know, of, of all of all of that. It's like, I don't, I think I don't care, but maybe I do. And then there you go. Right. So it's a chemical structure difference in America. They don't tend to do that in other places. So that's that's concept number one. Number two is we heavily spray in this country and other countries too. And those crops tend to be, from my understanding, they spray them not so much to protect them from bugs as much as to like ripen the grain. It does something, you know, it allows them to do something that benefits the stockholders, but they're heavily spraying these things. And so those are, those kill our gut microbiome. Those inflame the gut barrier. I mean, you name it, they, they are going to open those gates so that now those larger fragments are going to squeeze through and will develop sensitivities. So sprays, absolutely. And then in America, it's a government subsidized grain, right? So farmers are being paid to grow these cereal crops, um, wheat especially. And so they tend to sit in silos for years before they turn into Fruit Loops, right? And we're feeding them to our kids. Not my kids, but, um, you know, <laughs> so that, that develops what we call endotoxic molds, right? Endotoxic just means like little toxic proteins in the mold, you know, cell bodies basically. So when they, when they die or whatever, when they're in our food, then we get exposed to their toxins. You know, that has a detrimental impact on our gut as well, right? And so you put it all together, a highly suspect molecule that's heavily sprayed, that's contaminated with mold, eaten in a rush in a family that you're pissed off at and you have to go to work later that you don't like, you know, you know, see what I mean? It starts to build. Another distinction that I see a lot in my practice is that sometimes people think they're gluten intolerant mm -hmm. and they actually feel better when they go off gluten, but it's not yeah. gluten itself. It's that they're allergic to grasses and a lot of ah. these things are grasses. So can That's you, right. can you address that? Cause even a lot of functional medicine doctors uh, don't make that distinction. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so yeah, that's right. They all are in the grass family. It's all, even the gluten-free grains all in the grass family. So that's why they do share some of those little proteins that can be, you know, sensitivity reactions, but you're right. There could be an allergy reaction to just the grass itself. Um, but I definitely pay attention to allergy reactions versus sensitivity reactions because they're different. Um, they can equally be awful and they can equally ruin your life. Um, I think one of the quickest ways to know if something's an allergy versus a sensitivity is generally in the amount of time it takes to have the reaction. In an ideal world, meaning if you're not having these reactions too often, they don't all blend together. Uh, an allergy is going to be an immune reaction that takes place over about 15 to 20, maybe 30 minutes. 
um, eat a shrimp, swell up, right? That's an allergy reaction. And it's, it's um, marked on a blood test by an antibody called an IgE, immunoglobin E reaction. Um, that's different. That's an allergy reaction. A sensitivity reaction takes place over the course of usually 24 to maybe 48 hours, maybe 72 hours, something like that, longer term. And it's tested for with IgG and IgMs, perhaps, and IgAs. So th those tend to be more of a sensitivity type reaction instead of an allergy reaction. Um, yeah, but, but the trouble is, is if you're doing something all the time, every day, sometimes you do lose the cause and effect and allergy versus sensitivity um, goes away. Like that, that ability to, to have that understanding cause and effect goes away. And when we do something every day, it's hard. I mean, everything just blurs. We know we just yeah. feel bad and, and we have no idea why. That's right. So there's a lot of times where people are getting false negatives on these tests. And those people tend to be autoimmune patients, whether they know it or not. So if an, a certain part of the uh, immune system is cranking up, overreacting, killing tissue, the other part of the immune system tends to take a, a, a hit it starts to decline like a teeter-totter at a playground. If certain immune cells are high, the other ones are low. So in some autoimmune cases, the B cells, the T helper two side of things is depressed. That's where all of our antibodies come from. So if you're just not making IgA or IgG's antibodies or what have you in enough quantity to test positive for these very, very specific things we're looking for, then your test resort results look quote unquote normal or even low. So I'm always suspect when I get a sensitivity panel back and all of the markers say less than, like, like it's too low to measure, less than. And it's like, oh, oh yeah, we're looking at some B cell suppression. Maybe we should listen more to their experience with the foods and the symptoms and not worry about the tests. And maybe we want to follow up with a T and B cell lymphocyte panel and really dig into the immunology. Yeah, I, I think that there's my favorite lab. Uh, you, you will pay a little bit more for them, but you will pay good money for them um, uh, because there's a lot of not so good labs in my opinion. Um, I prefer a lab called Cyrex Labs, C-Y-R-E-X Labs. Um, their gluten panel is their Array 3X and they look for not just IgA or not, and not just IgG, but both of them for every single thing they look at. And they, they look at like, I don't know, 20 or so different things. If any one of those have an antibody reaction, that's positive. It's like casting a bigger net. So I really appreciate Cyrex because they look for all of those things. Alpha gliadin is the most common. And if you ever get tested by a mainstream doctors, they probably will look for alpha gliadin. Um, you might only get transglutaminase looked at, which only looks for celiac attack in the gut. And that's not fair because there's, that's a very small fraction of gluten reactions. So I really like Cyrex for that reason. They're very thorough. Um, they detect early. So they're going to give you what's called equivocal and then out of range. And so they're, they're going to give you a, a marker. That's an early reaction, not a disease based reaction, not full blown. Like, Oh dear gosh, you have diabetes. Yeah. Right. Let's see what happened before the diabetes, right? It, they're going to, they're going to tell you that for things like gluten and autoimmune. Um, if you're making antibodies to your myelin basic protein, that is a precursor for the disease, multiple sclerosis. You don't want that to progress. So let's not wait to diagnose that. Um, what else? They also repeat their testing, I think three times before they publish their results, which I like. Um, so if you have a marker on there, that's positive, they've confirmed that three times in their lab before they, they printed that paper for you. 
So that's really nice. And, and also this should not be underlooked. They are CLIA certified. There's a, there's a governing body called uh, CLIA, C-L-I-A. And if a lab doesn't have that, um, they can't reproduce their, their results effectively enough and they, they, they're not very trustworthy. There's a lot of food panels out there that, that are not CLIA certified. Can you speak more to distinguish celiac disease from other gluten reactions that impact the yeah. digestive tract? Yeah, absolutely. So celiac disease um, is a genetic thing. Um, it's a HLA-DQ gene um, abnormality, which basically um, predisposes that person to autoimmunity against a protein in their gut tissue called transglutaminase 2. Transglutaminase. So if you are looked at for gluten in the mainstream model, most of the time, all they do is look for transglutaminase 2. If it's positive, it's probably celiac disease. They'll take a biopsy and then they'll wait for 75% of your little microvilli in your intestines to be eroded. And if it's past 75%, they'll call you a celiac disease patient. Um, now, non-celiac gluten sensitivity reactions, um, let's just say with gut enteropathy, meaning gut, gut damage, gut inflammation, does not have to be autoimmune celiac. It can just be an inflammatory destructive process in the gut. But if you were to expand that celiac family outwards from the gut, transglutaminase 3 is found in your skin. So that gets back to the eczema, psoriasis, all that kind of stuff. And transglutaminase 6 is found in the brain and nerve tissue. So that's why um, a lot of people eat gluten and they feel it in their brain. Um, so another, getting back to Cyrix, they differentiate between basic sensitivity to the grain, and then they look at all three of those transglutaminase markers as well. So do you have autoimmunity now as a result of your gluten exposure? Big question. Good thing to know, because with autoimmunity, there's never just one. It's almost never. There's usually something else lurking. So transglutaminase looks a lot like TPO. So there's a high thyroid gut celiac link there, just to name a few, and cerebellar. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share on this subject? I feel like I just want to um, say that there's a, a sequence of events that leads to most things, right? It's never just A to B. And, and that's where the more astute clinician, uh, I'd say more of the seasoned clinician probably is, is, is better suited at, at really taking a step back and not, not focusing on the shiny symptom that's, that's presenting all the time. Like that's obviously in focus, but, but we need to know like, what are all those other things that led to that? And what are, what's being done for them, if anything, and, and what can we do for them, right? So I, I feel like clinically, it's really, really important to take a step back and really appreciate the larger scope, which, which I feel is what makes a functional medical approach really beneficial for people, because we have time to do that. Um, looking for those losses of tolerance, restoring barriers in the body. Gut barrier we talked about is a biggie. Leaky gut. We didn't talk about leaky gut, but that's all that is, is that breach in the barrier. So larger things squeeze through. Um, lung barrier gets overlooked all the time. If you're in a polluted uh, environment or if you just have a lot of dust particles in your home, and you know, th those are, you're, you're challenging that lung barrier, which challenges your immune system. So um, pick your barrier <laughs> and they're all over our bodies. Um, those are things to consider when you're talking about how am I responding to my foods and how are those foods pushing my autoimmune. So that, that just gets back to the, the basic tenets of functional blood chemistry. How's their blood sugar? How are their thyroids? How are their sex hormones? 
How are their detoxing mechanisms? Are they just have high toxic burden? Are there neurological implications there? I love the neurology piece. It's totally overlooked. Um, massive gut brain connection. Um, are, is there anemia there or iron overload issues? Is there stress physiology? Are there drug reactions pushing it? Are there genetics, right? So we have to consider the larger picture and that in a nutshell is functional blood chemistry and functional medicine. And that's why I get up every day and go to work. <laughs> and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Absolutely. If people would like to learn more, how can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, so my website is um, www.functionalmedicine-sandiego.com. And I also have my own new little baby podcast. Um, it's um, only on Spotify at the moment. I, um, it's just titled A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Cheltis. Well, this has been fascinating, and I hope you'll come back again sometime. Awesome. Anytime. Great. Love doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much. This All has right. been Healthy, Wealthy You and Dr. Camille. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Healthy, Wealthy You. Have a question but weren't able to get on the show today? Join us next week and call in. Until then, hold that inspiration.